Hi, you're listening to Cool Story with Brian Brady, where we talk about our stories, the best stories, and the biggest story of the week. This week, Lee Sale's new book, Do Aliens Exist? Is your phone distracting you from talking to your kids? And why Australia's world championship winning netball team aren't getting paid? I'm Brie Lee. And I'm Bridie Jabal. Bridie, you had a huge week. I've had a massive week of essentially continuously hanging out with Carolina O'Donoghue, <laughs> <laughs> the Irish author and... She's also the co-host of the, for people who don't know of the the hit podcast, Sentimental Garbage, which means a lot to a lot of girls in Australia. And she is just exactly like she seems, like exactly as fun. On Sunday, I had um, a podcast record with her this week, which has come out, which hope everyone loved. I love doing that interview with her. And then I had two events that I was doing with her. So I was interviewing her three times. So on Sunday, I sent her a message just saying, um, you know, is there anything you're sick of talking about? Anything you particularly want to talk about? Anything off limits? I'm thinking like this vague outline and don't worry, I'm not going to ask you about the power of female friendship. (laughs) (laughs) And I put it in like funny little marks and she wrote back that afternoon and she said, hey, do you want to go for a drink? (laughs) Which is like, you know, one of those like minor fantasies that never happen. Someone whose work you love and who you're a fan of, you know, like I always think if Zadie Smith just met me. She would want to get a drink with you. If Kendrick Lamar just met me. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, we all have that feeling. And so I was like, yeah, of course. But I'd been at uh, the DMAs the night before and I'd had a really big night, great gig, but I'd had a really big night. And so I was a little bit peaky and was planning to stay home all day. But, you know, I rallied for Caroline, but I did think I'll go and have a couple of beers with her and then go home. And she had just come back from these massive events in Melbourne and arrived in Sydney. And when I arrived, she was like, oh, you know, I've been on this real high and I'm starting to feel the come down. So sorry if I'm not very vibrant, but, you know, let's get a drink. And I thought, right, okay, we're both in the let's get two beers. Well. Next minute. (laughs) Margaritas. (gasps) Multiple beers, whiskey, <laughs> venue change, a pack of cigarettes. <laughs> That's later. the least surprising thing about this, Brady. <laughs> I actually never buy ciggies anymore. Like I want to, but I bum them off people occasionally. But I I smoke less. Like I think of myself as quit and it is maybe like four times a year. You just get to see it's out your, yeah. the window of your apartment four yeah. times a year. I, I love ciggies. it. I love it. We just connected. You know, you just meet someone and you just vibe and – we had so much fun and she's just exactly as great and funny and smart and sharp in real life as she seems in all of her work. And she recommended a book to me by an Australian that I'd never heard of. What the fuck? What? Book? I know. And so I wanted to give the inside, the listeners, cool story, listeners the inside scoop on this because I haven't read it yet, but we're all getting the Caroline Australian recommendation. Give me the inside scoop on this. So she went into a bookshop and picked it up from browsing the bookshop. You know, I just wanted to read something in Australia. Very cool. This book has, I've looked it up. It has a great cover. It's by Robert Skinner called I'd Rather Not. Have you heard of it? No. 
Googling immediately. Google the image now because the cover is amazing. I cannot believe that she found a book that <laughs> neither of us have heard of. And we run the local recommendation yeah. show. <laughs> and I said, but also I feel like I know every writer in Australia True. who's around our age. Like True. it's not a massive industry. Oh, and, I've seen this cover. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's not a massive industry. You know, you mm-hmm. at least know, you're at least friends of friends or you know what's happening. And she said the book is so funny in a way that she loves and which people aren't doing anymore. She described it as like David Sedaris. <gasps> yeah, and said that it was so refreshingly funny without being self-conscious and she absolutely tore through it. Wow. So okay. it's on, I'll be reading it next. It's on my list because I last week had been reading The Rachel Incident by Caroline O'Donoghue to get ready and it was a great book, a great especially for any women in your 30s. It's so – it's about um, – This is the Rachel incident we're yeah, talking about Yeah, the Rachel now. incident. It's about a woman in her 30s now looking back on her very early 20s in uni in Cork. Now, that's very specific, but, you know, the way that she writes about the friendships that you're forming and how intense you are and the silly mistakes you're making and going out and, like, drinking culture and, you know, discovering sex, like good sex after, mm. you know, your teen year sex is so – like vibrant and grubby and dead on and very and it was very nostalgic. So great read. It would be a great beach read. And um, she wrote it in eleven weeks. <laughs> this is a conversation you and I need to have on the show another time about our very differing writing styles. Yeah, we should actually because like, <laughs> yeah. I always find process so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And she went into it a bit in the interview that we've already done. So I won't harp on about it now, but. It was a great book. And you came to the event on and because she said that you are exactly as how she imagined Rachel. That's the first thing she said to me. She was like, you just look exactly like Rachel. Yeah, she because the, there was a uh, the cool story photo over my shoulder and halfway through the interview she's like, I'm sorry, I'm just so distracted. Your co-hostess is exactly what I imagined Rachel to be. And she's like, she a tall woman? And I'm like, yes, me being up like yeah. me being up to her shoulder. I am up to her shoulder, yes. <laughs> well, there was this, so I went with my friend Thea, who's a huge Carolyn fan, and we both were struck by one particular thing that Carolyn said when you were interviewing her at the event, at the very sold out, like very excellent event, I got to say. Sometimes, you know, you and I both do a lot of events like on stage in some capacity or attending them. And sometimes you go to a, an event and there's just a good vibe in the room. Wasn't there? Yeah. Was that? Yeah. So anyway, something Carolyn said was that, you know, the book is a woman who's like that little bit older reflecting on her life when she was that little bit younger. And that so much of Carolyn's work, I'm obviously paraphrasing her here, including like the book does this and Sentimental Garbage does this, is to like allow and like demonstrate, I suppose, women to look back on their younger selves without so much of the loathing, like to, like she talked about being able to sort of reflect on how much you've grown and changed, but not from a sort of negative cringe, like excruciating place. Yes. And my friend Thea said that that is absolutely what she like got from the Rachel incident was that it felt like a warm hug and it showed her how you can look back on your younger self without trying to like really almost aggressively distance yourself from how far you've come and therefore like hate on your younger self. 
And Carolyn said that that was quite a small literary ambition. And my friend Thea and I, that was, we turned to each other as soon as your event, like as soon as the sort of in conversation finished. And that was the first thing we raised with each other because we both felt like that was a colossal and potentially transformative literary ambition. Yeah, and it's very unusual for Caroline to minimise impact or how people feel or what's important or or minimise what people feel important. So it was like a quite funny self-deprecating remark to make at the end of it. Did you note that remark? Pardon? Did you note that remark? Like did you hear? I clocked it. I laughed at the time and I I did clock it and in, you know, my deep, recesses I thought that's not a small literary ambition like if if that's a small literary ambition to make people feel like they've had a warm hug to forgive their younger self to be able to look back on themselves without you know being full of shame and to have compassion for how you change and grow well what is the big literary ambition like what do you think a big literary ambition would be well that's like what I was then thinking about in my uber home I was like what to sort of I think maybe this is a slightly gendered thing and it reminds me of you know when I showed you that my book cover and you were like oh this is like a sort of big book like some fucking Jonathan Franz and thing I feel like maybe we're like incorrectly using the words big and small and what we really mean is almost like to affect like a change in the interior of the reader versus to somehow take some epic enduring theme and condense it on the page. Yes. Does I, that make any sense? That makes sense. And I but I also think that at the moment, particularly this week and this month, but also this year and this past three or four years, it can feel trivial at times for some people to be dwelling in the domestic. It's like our conversation last week about the Nobel laureate mm. being criticised for writing in the domestic sphere and accused of stuffing his ears with dough. Mm. I think you can write in the domestic sphere and also be an advocate and an activist, you know, outside of your work when you need to. And also I think that, you know, some writers don't owe people that. So I think it's that it's that struggle as well of thinking that you're writing books and doing something that's quite like, focused on yourself and quite solitary and then looking around the world at what's happening and, you know, how people's, how other people have to live their life and, you know, the tragedies that before people every day and think that you're being indulgent. Well, I don't think that you're being indulgent because even in all of those places, people still are living a domestic life to a degree and it certainly you know, interior life is still, I think, something that's worth being interrogated. But I can understand how people can sometimes, some writers can feel a bit self-conscious about tackling those things in these in this huge, like, historic moment that we've been living in since essentially, like, 2016. Yes. Yeah. And Do you I, think that's what it comes from, thinking that it's a small literary ambition? Yeah, I don't know. Do you know. think she was thinking in the context of, like, global and national events? Maybe. Maybe. At the moment. Yeah, I suppose. I just think as well, like, I understand it as a very political charged thing. Like, one of the reasons patriarchy endures is because women are made to feel shame in so many different ways. And if you can be any one brick lifted off that wall, you're having a colossal impact. 
anyway, and I think it's radical and there was obviously like everyone in that room was like hard relate, <laughs> very resonating. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. she was incredible. She came out after and mingled with her, had a beer, mingled with everyone, chatted to everyone. She was amazing. She Somebody uh, baked cookies that were like relevant from this, you know, cook, I'm not going to tell a huge story, but somebody baked her a cookie that was meaningful and she ate it. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow. She would, Yeah, she would have loved that. I think she's also come to Australia as a person like completely open to all experiences while here. Amazing. Yep. And um, it would be wild to go to the other side of the world and, get this welcome, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it would. Yep. Um, I also had a little time off during the day, which is rare, and I went to the cinema. Oh, well, what did you see? Past Lives. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen it. It's uh, so worth seeing. I love going to the cinema and it really does not happen much for me anymore, and particularly going to cinema, the cinema during the day is such a treat. So I saw Past Lives, which was a beautiful, beautiful film. It's still on at the cinemas and I think still running at a lot of cinemas, but definitely worth looking up when it starts streaming. It's essentially about the story of these two Korean children who are best friends when they are 12 and one immigrates to Canada. They cross paths again 12 years later, briefly, and then they cross paths again 12 years later after that. So you see them at 12, you see them at 24, and then you see them in their mid-30s. Wow. And this isn't a spoiler, but, you know, by the mid-30s, because it's a boy and a girl, the woman is married and the little male friend comes and visits her in New York for three days and a lot of the uh, movie is made up of that visit and it's just like so tender and beautiful and surprising and I cried so much at the end but not because it's sad just because it moving it's moving and it really makes you think about life and the connections you've had at certain times and how sometimes you can especially when you're younger and this happens both ways like when you're younger you can have a connection with someone and then you decide to move on or not maintain it because you think oh whatever you know I'm going to meet other people and then you look back in your 30s and realise actually that was a really special connection that doesn't happen every month or even every year that you meet someone that you vibe so much with. Unless you're me. I vibe with my barista. <laughs> I vibe with someone every day. <laughs> no, no, I'm being nice. I had to make a joke then, didn't I? <laughs> but, um, Too many minutes had passed of you being meaningful. Me being earnest, yeah. <laughs> and also, and that goes for friends as well as like romantic relationships and also Obviously the flip happens where you have these incredibly intense, meaningful relationships in your 20s and teens as well that you think are going to last forever and they don't. Mm. And it's just this like beautiful meditation on um, marriage, relationships, friendship, uh, growing older, even though they're you know obviously not that old by the end of it. And I just found it so moving and beautifully done. And also the way that New York is shot is like very dreamy and cool. Such a sucker for New York. I know. I know it's cliche, but it's like, whatever. I'm here for it. Me sitting in the, and I was in a cinema session where all of us had come alone. And there's always a great camaraderie in a cinema when you're all, when everyone is there by themselves. And um, we're all laughing at the same things and like enjoying our Enjoy because there were funny bits and enjoying ourselves. And, yeah, it was a really f- beautiful film. Finished it, bawled my eyes out, went out into the street, blinking in the daylight. I oh, still got half a day left. I do. I also love going to the movies alone. It's such a, yeah, mm. I really, I'm like fully there. 
fully present, feeling like very indulgent and excited and thrilled. The only times that I don't like it is when you've seen – and Past Lives was a good movie to watch by yourself, but when you've seen something that you really want to talk about immediately, like I wouldn't go and see Oppenheimer alone because yeah. I want to talk with someone immediately after it. wouldn't go and see Barbie alone. I you I did them both back to back alone. I know you were doing it a bit for work, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And like a lot of, I mean, a lot of the most of the movies I see, I end up writing about somehow, often for news and reviews because they're either good or bad. But yeah, I, that was a fucking emotional roller coaster. That yeah, really and would have helped to have a single other fucking soul to like. Yeah, Downloading so those are definitely the kind of movies where you do want to chat to someone after. But yeah. overall, I yeah love going to the cinema alone. I don't know if I'm going to make it again anytime soon. So what else have you been doing this week? Um, Well, my husband and I recently began re-watching for the whatever time some of our favourite X-Files episodes. <laughs> <laughs> you love the X-Files. I fucking love the X-Files. It's iconic. It's so so good. Scully is Agent Scully, played by Gillian Anderson, is just like icon, hero. So my just, memory of it, like I would rewatch it now. I haven't thought about it in years. My memory of it is from when I was a kid. My actual memory of it was um, my mum let me stay up with her to watch it because mum loves always loves having someone to hang with. So I was didn't have a bedtime essentially, <laughs> and I remember sitting on the couch with mum watching X Files and. My little sister peeking her head around the door and oh. me being like, Mom, Mom, Anna's out of her bed. <laughs> you just little shit. Yeah, just such a witch. Anna's trying to just watch from the doorway. She would have been about seven. So I have warm memories of watching with my mum and I remember it, it like from my child tween perspective as being fun and a bit scary, but I probably missed some things that you're getting out of it as an adult watching it? Well, I never really watched it when I was a kid. It was just, it just, because it ran for so many years, I just remember it existed. Like, and I knew basically that Mulder believed in aliens and Scully was like the kind of smart, rational doctor. And then, yeah, my partner and I watched it like from the beginning. Maybe it was like when we'd first moved to Sydney. So this is four coming up on five years ago. And we spent a very long time gradually working our way through every single episode, of which there are many. And there are real peaks and troughs, like any show that goes for that long. There are like entire seasons that are way stronger than others. But the other thing is that there is this, you know, this sort of overarching sort of canon plot line about whether or not Mulder's missing sister got abducted by aliens, right? Like that's this kind of ah, enduring. Ah, see, I've completely forgotten that. Yeah. Yeah, whereas what we most, we realise we most enjoy about the show is what we refer to as the monster of the week, where they're just like rocking up in some town and there's like tracks in the mud that were made by an animal but they saw a human. <laughs> it's just, it's really good. It's like the, it has become the ultimate comfort watch. And the reason it works is because of like the gender flip where like so often it's, whatever you're presented with in so many different genres across like film and TV and books, every method of storytelling, the man is this kind of like stoic bastion of like rational thought, whatever. And the woman is this kind of emotional or like 
in touch with her senses or whatever thing. And the reason X-Files consistently, consistently works is because of the flipped script right at the time, I think, when there was this new exciting flavour to the conversation about women at work. And Gillian Anderson is such a fucking hero. She's so charismatic. She is. You're the scully to my moulder. Every (laughs) week I'm in here trying to convince you ghosts exist, star signs are real. Aliens are definitely real, by the way. Do you believe in aliens? Yes, of course I do. What do you mean when you say you believe in aliens? I just don't think that it's possible that we're the only life in this vast, vast universe. What do you mean by life, though? What do you mean? Like, what do you I, mean? I think there's societies on other planets. You think that they're, okay, yeah. so, right. so yeah, you yeah. think that there are societies on other planets yep. in, like, just somewhere? Yeah, that I don't know where. And all, but I also do believe some of the alien spotting. Like I do believe that some have visited us for sure. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> it was the it was the only exciting thing about Donald Trump's presidency when I thought he was going to release all the classified <laughs> FBI CIA documents that showed aliens real. Yeah, what do you think, <laughs> Scully? George Jetson. (laughs) She said, I've been to the year 3000. (laughs) I'm imagining. Sorry. Anyway, there are some, there are definitely like some like videos of footage I've seen that are apparently currently inexplicable where I'm like, oh, but this is obvious. This also just tracks with my feelings in general about whether or not I believe in a God or higher being, which is that like humans aren't that great. There is almost certainly something bigger out there. And if it is beyond current human conception, then it's beyond my conception. So you do believe in all my ghost stories? That's a what? That's a stretch. Okay, yeah, but also like there's a difference between believing that there are things we can't explain and believing that the month I was born has anything to do with my personality. I just don't think that you're advanced enough to conceive of. <laughs> Okay, oh my I'm, God. Gonna, I'm gonna. <laughs> it's like the other night when my brother met you and he was like, he was teasing you a bit, and I said, "Oh, don't listen to him, Bree. He's just teasing you." And you're like, "I'm used to being teased. I host a podcast with you. you. <laughs> also, I too have an older brother. Yeah. Like, this is a mode in which I am comfortable sitting." The other thing I came across this week that I wanted to share about was that every month for News and Reviews magazine, I pick one fiction and one nonfiction book so that people at home can kind of read along. And then in the following month's magazine at the beginning of every month, there's like some kind of like engagement with that book. And the nonfiction book I picked for this month is Lee Sales' new book, Storytellers. And I just like ripped through this in the last few days. It's I mean, it's the subtitle is Questions, Answers, and the Craft of Journalism. And so it's there's not a lot of Lee Sales herself in here. The vast majority of – she's sort of written an introduction. And the vast majority of the book is just verbatim recorded in conversations. Um, with, with her? Between her, yes. But oh, like, so it is the conversations are between her. Because there's yes. quite a list of journalists on the Huge. front of that. So, and I'm just going to read out briefly, um, not like the whole list of names, but she's categorized the interviews. So there's news reporting and then there's like rounds and foreign correspondence, investigative reporting, features and books, interviewing, live broadcasting, 
telling a story with pictures, commentary and, and analysis, anchoring, and then editors and executive producers. So she's oh, cool. Re- yeah. I didn't realize it went that deep. Yeah. And in the introduction, she's like, talks about how one of the things I admired in her introduction and then throughout the interviews was that some of these people not contradict each other, well, I guess, like disagree with each other about attitudes towards newsmaking and production. And Lee Sales explicitly says in her opinion that the vast majority of the most important lessons you can learn about making news in some way have to be learned on the job. And her big sort of motive in pulling this book together was so that anyone who's like interested in either already in the profession and want to do better or in particular I can imagine any young people or emerging in the profession want to like learn from other people but don't have the sort of chance yet. And anyway, some of them are so good. I've chosen two little bits that I really loved to share. So one is with Samantha Maiden. And (laughs) what a character. Yes. This is going to be funny. Yeah, and it so comes through. So like, for example, I'm about – Lee Sales has like two lines of a question. Sam, you arguably break more news than anyone in the country. Tell me some of the ways you go about finding stories. And then Samantha Maiden's answer spans like almost three pages. <laughs> it's just, it's just like, and it's so good. Anyway, there's this one little bit where she's like describing um, the story of how she found out that um, Scott Morrison was in Hawaii yes. during the fires. Yes. And it's all so, so funny. And she's like telling, like someone's given her a bit of a tip, but it's not a full tip. And she's like trying to, she's like calling people at airports oh, to see if they had. She's sick- relentless. Yeah. Like this is why she breaks news. She is amazing. Yeah. And she goes, and I'm reading out verbatim. And then I just got the shits. Some of my best stories come out of getting the shits. When I get annoyed, I'm like, right, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> So good. And then Motivated then, by spite. I yeah, love it. Yeah, really, really good. Um, and then my personal favourite interview in the whole book is with another icon, legend of mine, Kate McClymont. Yes. Um, who <laughs> just – my husband and I have this joke that like there's just an entire category of human beings who live in a perpetual state of fear that one day they will get a phone call from Kate McClymont. <laughs> And what? It's funny you guys have that joke because it's kind of like an ongoing joke in newsrooms as well. Right. Like we talk about, imagine like the, yeah, that caller ID coming up on your phone. Oof. Just shitting your pants. Yeah, you're just like, like my life is over. Over, yeah. I'm going to have to give all this $20 million back. Yeah. So Lee Sales asks Kate McClamont, you're no stranger to legal threats and even death threats. How do you deal with the fear of pissing people off? And then um, McClamont responds with a short par. You're going to piss people off. If you didn't piss people off, you wouldn't be doing your job. You can't worry about that. It's funny. Sometimes people come up to me in the office and say, perhaps you could look at this story. I don't have the stomach for it. It might be a bikey gang or something. She says to them, why not? Like as in, why wouldn't they do it? And they reply, the fear and terror is just too much for me and I don't want to do it. I go, right, pass it over. I'm just an innately optimistic person. I think people might want you to stop what you're doing, but they don't actually want to kill you. Well, that's something I cling to. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, yeah, I got the opportunity to send Lee Sales a bunch of questions about this book and it'll be in the next news and reviews. But regardless of that, it's just if you have any interest in how news is made and some like, you know, funny anecdotes 
and from all I, I really like that it was from all of these different angles of news production. Oh, it, and I love yeah. the how it's been divided up there. I'd be so interested in the executive and editor's part yeah. of that book. And she's right, you know, when she said what, learning, like the way you learn is on the job, oh, it's like, I did a cadetship, which is quite rare now, mm. at the same time as I was doing my degree. So I started at a newspaper on the Gold Coast when I was 18, just turned 18 uh, a few months out of school, and I would do a semester in a newsroom, then a semester at uni, then a semester in a newsroom. And so my cadetship and degree was broken up like that. That is extraordinary. As in an opportunity. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Completely made me, made every, made my whole career. And it's also a lot, like Rick Morden went through the same thing. Um, the current chief political correspondent for the Australian is Jeff Chambers. He went through the same program. Like there is a lot of people that have come out of that particular program, a lot of great journalists. And I even at the time I would do like my one semester in the newsroom and my one semester at uni and I would just think, why is this a degree? Mm. It should be like a trade. Well, that's like it should be like apprenticeship in the newsroom because every, I didn't learn. Like my teachers were good and, you know, they were teaching what they could, but you, you just can't teach someone what it's like to, you know, ring up people that you've never met before and ask them pointed questions or walk past something and notice that it's something's out of place and further ask more questions of that or even how to be part of like a journalist scrum around a mm-hmm. politician or a cop or anyone and get your – question in and then also how to deal with people being upset with your reporting just or even how to write the story once you've got it like you could teach the basics of that maybe in an academic way but even that I learned all of that in the newsroom like what should be the top bit and how how to structure it all and how it all comes together Mm. it was an amazing experience and opportunity sales also uses that word trade that it's yeah. like a trade craft. Yeah, it should be a trade. Yeah. It doesn't need to be a degree. And, I mean, I went straight from high school into a journalism degree and then quit it after a year because I was so appalled by, like, what I was getting. A lot of my English colleagues, they have, like, a slightly different approach in England where a lot of journalists have degrees in other things, mm. which is exactly how it should be. Yeah. Like, people, like, they've got, like, anthropology degrees or degrees in architecture or, or you know, degrees in like crime science. Yeah. That is what you need. Like that, then those you have are, a beat. Yeah, like, exactly. You have like this knowledge of a specific area and then go do your trade in a newsroom. When I teach workshops about freelancing and stuff in particular and how to like sort of get some rungs on the board, I'm very honest about the fact that like earlier in my career I was like, oh, well, at least what I've got is like law, legal knowledge, legal experience. Yeah. I will – like just make that a bit of a beat until I can sort of branch out and do what else I want. And that's just like, yeah, I think that's such a better approach. Anyway, yeah, really good book, highly recommend it. Can't wait to read it. I'm going to be taking it off you as we walk out of the studio <laughs> now that you've finished it. Yeah. All right. Well, I saw two articles in the past week that I have sent to you, Bridie, because they were both – on the, they both appeared really high up on the like homepages of their respective outlets. And interestingly, they both relate to parenting. And now I'm wondering, like, is this something that I just didn't look at before I started making a podcast with somebody that has kids? Like, did I just have this kind of like blanket thing where like anything that referenced children or parents I was uninterested in? Or is it the case that there is there really like is more parenting content? And you said, so one of them is from The Cut and it's called Why Are We Always On Call For Our Kids by Catherine Jaser Morton. 
Um, and the other one was on the homepage pretty high up of ABC News, an analysis piece. Parents make mistakes. So what does good enough parenting look like? Which was a sort of co-post with the conversation by um, Cher McGillivray. And you said that you felt like The Cut had been doing, which is a subset of New York magazine, had been doing a lot more really good parenting. Yeah, they've been doing it. It seems very zeitgeisty for them at the moment because they just did a Another article which went viral about how friendship changes. Oh, yes. Yeah, how babies change Change friendships. They've also just did an article two weeks ago about how am I supposed to have sex now with teenagers around. Yeah. So really interesting, like a really great way into parenting. Like the cut is so good at getting into like what the zeitgeist is talking about. You know, they did that famous Nepo Babies cover last year as well, which wasn't parenting but I'm – I'm using that as an example of them being really into the zeitgeist, really clocking into what people are talking about and then commissioning well and writing well so it really nails what's been on everyone's minds. Yes. And so it's really interesting to me how much parenting content there has been this year. Yeah. Is parenting having a zeitgeist moment? (laughs) Is parenting cool? Did I invent parenting? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> anyway, there was also – so the, those are the two articles I noticed. And when I read the second one, I had like a boom moment where I realised they were very much saying like a similar thing. So I'm reading from a one par from the article that was in the cut, which is about this – so it opens with an anecdote from this woman, the, the author of the piece, who was at this, you know, fitness studio where she was like really – under the pump and like in this sort of cool area and her very young teenage son just like appeared on the on the other side of the glass out the front kind of like in his pajamas I think it was like waving her card being like can I use this and she was like she just had this moment of sort of fury of like how can you just expect to interrupt my life like this in and just like come I in, can't even in, have a freaking a, exercise, exercise class, class without you banging on banging on yeah and then she sort of asks herself what she has done to like or you know she sort of says it 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 must be because I'm not like haven't made my boundaries clear etc and then she says my children can reach me at any time and as a result of our constant contact they rarely have to wait for their parents or for anyone else for that matter but my phone also prevents me from relating to them too much of my life and work happens through it, as is true for so many of us. It can be hard to give them my full attention in moments when they very reasonably would expect to have it. In the wake of the Orange Theory incident, <laughs> which is like this, you know, when he appears outside her fitness class, I began to wonder if the standing reserve approach to parenting, in which we are always on call for our kids' logistical needs, is a way of compensating for being too distracted to meet their need for actual connection. An unintended consequence of this act of compensation has been the erosion of boundaries that I suddenly feel the need to reinforce. And then, so stay with me, this is like one short par from the ABC News piece about quote-unquote good enough parenting. But good enough parenting recognises parental failure is an inevitable part of life. Experiencing sadness, tears and anger are part of childhood and parents should allow children to gradually tolerate some frustration. The good enough parent realizes it's not possible to be available and immediately responsive all of the time. As I've been saying this entire podcast, it's great to ignore your kids. It's good for them. Those articles I did think complemented each other and must be tapping into this thing, growing 
anxiety that parents are having as, you know, um, the phone. iPhones have been out, what, since like 2008. So all those kids, all those babies who were born as people were getting their first iPhone are now in their mid-teens. Oh, yeah. And so I think that there's there'd be a lot of anxiety building around that. That note, your kid's never waiting for you article was so interesting to me and it was so funny. You sent it to me yesterday afternoon. I had just done school pickup with my brother who's visiting and Seamus and I were walking there and I said, oh, we're we're running a bit late. And he said, why, what time do you have, have to be there? I said, 3.10. And he's like, it's 3.05 and we're around the corner. And I'm like, no, bruh, you don't understand. <laughs> I said, it's not like when we were kids where you just like wait around 20 yeah. minutes, half, like you've got a 20 minute, half an hour window. <laughs> 45-minute window in my mum's case. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, it's not like when we were kids where everyone waits around. I'm like, it's a real thing that I've noticed. I'm like, every parent is there before 3.10. Everyone, and this is from kindergarten to year six. Like I can understand kindergarten parents being a bit more vigilant with being there on time because it's quite a different thing to leave a your five-year-old wondering where you are to your 12-year-old. But um, I said, every single parent is there at 3.10. No one comes after. The teachers say, okay. You can go um, dismissed, you can go, and every child goes to their parent. And I said, and the entire thing is cleared out within about 90 seconds. That is so different from how I remember. Yeah, and Seamus's mind was blown. He's like, seriously, I'm like, no, no kid waits. I said, it's a real thing, you just wouldn't. And I think I would be ultra on time anyway uh, because I am just a very, very punctual person, unlike my mother. (laughs) (laughs) But it, 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 I, I noticed it as a cultural shift. And so it was interesting that you then sent me that article that was articulating exactly that, that there has been this cultural shift where, and she extends it, you know, my kids aren't old enough for being left at like sports practice alone and then picked up after sports practice. And so, and they're not old enough quite yet to be left at birthday parties alone. So I haven't done the drop off and leave and then come back thing, but uh, she said it extends to all of that. Like after sports practice, she was like 15 minutes late once and got judged by. Yeah, the coach goes, here's mum. Yeah. I was reading that and I was like, get fucked. I'd go sicko like, mode. Yeah. <laughs> i got better things to do than pick him up after sport. You think I'm just lying around? <laughs> but like do you did you ever come across this word fubbing? It's like when you like snub someone sort of a little bit, I think, because you're looking at your phone. And I would see there were a bunch of articles that came out about it like a bit before we started making this show about how not toxic, like how degrading it can be in relationships if you just kind of like if someone, if your partner is talking to you and then you just like check your phone. Yeah. And I just feel like there's some bigger anxiety happening that both of these pieces spoke to on some level where we are simultaneously much more available for people in all relations to us all of the time and yet much less like deeply present with them in person. And I find it very interesting because so like the iPhone, yeah, it was around 2008. That was the year I graduated from high school. So I had the absolute blessing of going all the way through schooling without smartphones, but I'm still young enough to feel like a digital native with smartphones and I am the last born in 1991 I'm like the last one of the last few people to sort of go through high school without yeah um, smartphones but just that constant availability and yet simultaneously when you're with someone constant distraction but 
I have so many people in my life, particularly outside of media and writing, who just do not reply to messages. Like they're not constantly available (laughs) at all. (laughs) Like they get back to you when they get back to you. I thought that the the Mother in the Cut article I thought was way too hard on herself about and Mm. and maybe parents in general saying, you know, you're not giving your kids enough attention, You're, you're always distracted on your phone. I just don't think that's a fact. I think you can be distracted on your phone, but there's tons of things that are distracting about parenting. You know, like I try to in the afternoons when I get home, put my phone on plane mode, put it in another room and like be with the boys. The boys don't want to be with me or if they do, they're being super annoying. (laughs) But, you know, it's not just your phone that's a distraction. I'll be cooking dinner on the stove and they will be at your legs like, mom, 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 mom. And you're like, what? And you turn around they're like, I drew this. I'm like, great, thanks. I love your black son. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, they they do want your attention all the time and you just can't give it to them all the time. And it's not just because of work. It's, you know, cooking dinner or getting stuff sorted for the next day or even simple things like hanging out the washing and they want you to be there. But then there's other moments of, profound connection that it doesn't matter how phone addicted a parent is I think that you would still be getting these like you know tucking them into bed at night having a bit of a chat to them then when you're driving especially if you're a parent who drives there's been a lot of conversations happen Mm -hmm. walking around because you're not walking around looking at your phone so when we're walking yeah sometimes but you're still walking like you're not looking at your phone the whole time and there, I think there are all, I just think that people shouldn't be so, particularly parents shouldn't be so hard on themselves. And there was, the article was funny and like, and did raise, I think, a real issue and trend. But I did think it was a bit alarmist in saying that these kids are, they had Dr. Becky saying these kids are going to have damaged attachment styles because their parents were distracted. You know, you're not just distracted by your phone and it's just impossible to give them full attention or the time I suppose like my only counter to that would be like if a parent is distracted because they're hanging the laundry out or making dinner then that's one thing but if a parent is distracted because they're just fucking scrolling social media that's something else yeah or reading a book like I'm more distracted they hate me when I'm reading a book more your kids than my hate phone. it when you read books well it's not so bad now but when they were a little like littler Hamish would come over while I was reading a book, take it off me and say no book and drop it into the bin. <laughs> no book? Like, yeah. I've got a video of him dropping Julia Baird's phosphorescence into the bin because he's like, stop reading the book. No book. And so. That's funny. Yeah. And there's still, so there's just yeah, other true. things that distract you. And I also think that modern parents, like there was just not this, you know, do you feel that when you were a kid with your phoneless parents that they were, like, giving you deep attention all the time? <laughs> like, I think it's a real expectation of modern parents in particular to be given this deep attention and more time. And, you know, there's those studies that show that working mothers today spend more hours with their children than stay-at-home mums of the 1970s. What? Yeah, it's because it's a real heavy modern expectation to, like, always be with them. And it used to be that, like, I'd be out in the yard for ages or in my room or creating my games. Yeah, true. I w- and especially the other thing about distraction is this 
whole anxiety over the phone distraction is such a parent of one or two children thing. But that's relevant here too, because more and more people every year, especially in countries like Australia and America, are only having one or two children. Yeah, but think about, do you think all the kids who are like one of four, one of five, one of 10 are emotionally damaged from their parents being distracted by the other kids? No, because they had their siblings. No, not all the time. I bet they they weren't getting deep attention from their parents. Mm. So like I think about the deep distraction that parents of bigger families have and what you grow up in. It's not damaging. No, no, but I still And you still if you're a parent of a child if you're a child of a parent with a phone and there's only one or two of you, I would like bet good money that you are getting way more deep attention from your phone parents than you would from your parent if you'd been like one of six. I agree with that. Yeah, so I agree with I that. I just don't think it's worth, but this, you know, this is in general, I think, an approach that from me that people won't be surprised about where I'm just like, chill out. It's fine. Yeah, which You'll is the fine. other reason why I sent you the ABC article because it's all is good enough parenting is good. And you, I'm like, yeah, that's uh, Bridie's going to oh, resonate with that. <laughs> there was almost a quote in it that was almost identical to what I'd said on the podcast a couple of weeks ago where I said, you got to just accept what they're interested in and then it's not your interest. And it had that in the article being like, if you've got a math kid, you can't make him be into soccer. And you've got yeah. a soccer kid, you can't make him be into math. And I was like, wow, I'm nailing this parenting thing, according to the ABC. <laughs> I love it. You had a news story that resonated with you as well. I did. Yeah, I had a news story that I think not a lot of people would have seen, but I thought was very interesting. And it's about – um. The Australian netball players are in negotiations with Netball Australia over their contracts and they basically want – it's basically the union negotiating with the employer for better contracts. The negotiations have gone on and on and on to the point where now the netball players aren't getting paid. They've run out of contract. They haven't been renewed. They're essentially unemployed. And the cricketers have stepped in with financial support – not just like publicly speaking out in support of those players, but the Australian Cricket Association, which is the Cricketers' Union, has put together a fund and they're going to be giving the netballers in financial hardship money with full support from the women's and men's cricketing team. And I thought, what an incredible show of solidarity. I love this story so much. Is it like, it's yeah. and it's just, it's amazing to see it anywhere in any profession, like solidarity across like that, because the Australian cricketers had very prolonged negotiations a few years ago, which were for essentially the same major thing, which is sharing in the revenue. They've just like come out the other side of having worked this out for themselves and are now like passing the ladder back. Yeah. And and it's unprecedented to have the cricketers giving the netball players money. And this is, you know, the Australian Diamonds who just won the World Cup and who were going gangbusters. And there was this great quote on Insiders that was in the article that was on Offsiders, sorry, which is the sports version of Insiders, where Australian cricket captain Alyssa Healy said that she had been at the Diamonds Constellation Cup match and she said, I was there the other night. I was watching the game. I'm a fan of the game. I'm sitting there. I'm watching 10,000 people there, sponsors everywhere. The product is amazing. The line to the merchandise out the door, netball has got to have money. Surely there's got to be money coming in because all that people out the door buying merch is because of those players. Yeah. But at the moment it's only Netball Australia getting that money. And some of the netball players are on $40,000 a year. 
The thing that moved me so much about this story that like gave me actual goosies was not only that it was a cross sport actual like fiscal solidarity, not only that it was cricket to netball, but there's also a gendered element here where like obviously there are also men's netball teams, but netball is known for being a woman women's sport and we're talking about the is it the diamonds, right? Yeah. The, who are this world like sort of champion standard of players and that's the women's team. And the thing that I fucking loved about this was that it was both the men's and women's cricketing yes. teams that like gave and acted in solidarity. The precedent this sets for like cross gender and cross code team solidarity. I'm like, come on, I'm here for it. I'm fucking yeah, here for it. It's amazing. And we will bring you the update <laughs> on this sporting story as they come week to week. No, truly I will. I'll keep you updated on Yeah, I'm here for this. And, I'm here for this we'll, angle on sport ball. And we'll link the um we'll link the article in the show notes, obviously, as always. So what are you going to be up to this week? I am really excited to go see. I'll probably go see it by myself in a cinema during the daytime. Or maybe, anyway, Killers of the Flower Moon. Same. Oh, my God. I was thinking of seeing that in Oh, maybe we should go myself. to. Yes. Oh. I'll, tell you go... my, I'll tell you my daytime okay. schedule. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe that's what... we should because I was thinking if I squeeze in one more daytime cinema, I, I want it to be Killers of the Flower Moon. Well, let's go together. Okay. And then we can talk about it. I love people hearing us organise our social life. Like when you got me the chaffle road tickets, <laughs> organising our social life on air. Yeah, great. Well, that's what you're doing next week then too. Yeah, that is. I was going to say I've got a few days clear and I'm going to be winding down and chilling out after what has felt like a massive month. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Cool. We'll see you then. <laughs> You've been listening to Cool Story with Bree and Bridie. You can find us wherever you get your podcast please rate and review we read them all you can also find us on instagram at cool story brie bridey cool story with brie and bridey is recorded on gadigal land and produced by sam devonport want to hear a cool story get it wherever you get your podcasts